everybody. This is The Legal Disclaimer, where we tell you that the views, thoughts, and opinions shared on this podcast belong solely to our guests and our hosts, and not necessarily Brady or Brady's affiliates. Please note that this podcast contains discussions of violence that some people may find disturbing. It's okay. We find it disturbing, too. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another mini episode of Red, Blue, and Brady. Thanks so much for being with us, especially in these trying and uncertain times. Now, today I am so excited because I get to talk again to Victoria from the LGBTQ Task Force. Victoria has been a guest of the podcast before, and she's always amazing. And today I brought her on specifically to talk about the public health crisis that we're living through right now. Not just COVID-19, but the public health crisis of gun violence. We've seen an increase in gun ownership, despite the fact that gun ownership, you know, can exacerbate a lot of vulnerabilities and a lot of dangers to individuals. And so today, Victoria is with me to talk about the impact that COVID-19 and gun violence can be having on the disability or other marginalized communities. So Victoria, even though everyone should know you because they should have listened to your amazing episode before, can you reintroduce yourself? Victoria Rodriguez-Roldan, that's my name in case anyone's forgotten it. And I'm a senior policy counsel at the National LGBTQ Task Force, technically based out of D.C., but currently sitting at home in Silver Spring, shelter in place. So, yep, we're all coming from different places around the D.C. area trying to make yep. it work. And what, what I have you here today uh, to talk about is specifically how, how are we handling disability and gun violence in the time of mm-hmm. COVID-19? And if we're, are we doing it well? I mean, you could say that almost nothing is being handled well right now. <laughs> like everybody, I think the whole world has had a collective meltdown and that's okay given the circumstances perhaps kind of like 9-11, but nationally rolling around the entire world in terms of the effects rather than ever, than it just hitting one place and everyone else worrying. I would say as far as disability, one of the biggest concerns in the disability community has been around the rationing of care. You've probably seen around headlines of, you know, hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. In New York, that is already happening. Ventilators may need to be rationed. There may not be enough for everyone who needs them. And the problem is, and this has already been happening in Italy, that often health providers start rationing it out based on health conditions. And people have, quote unquote, the least of possibility of survival, like having all sorts of pre-existing health conditions get uh, the short end of the stick. And at that point, there's a lot of disability advocates saying both that's discrimination and that's basically letting us to die. You know, if I don't get the ventilator, I need to survive. So, and indeed a good uh, think piece is by Ari Neiman in the New York Times about this. And the HHS Office of Civil Rights has been investigating certain similar guidelines propping up in Washington State and so on, which have been discussing the what to do if we have to ration care. Uh, One thing, obviously, you have to talk about is the mental health topic. Even the telemedicine has its problems. Well, it's very useful in psychiatric uh, health and mental health since 
there's no physical exchange and so on. There's still the question of, are you in a safe space to talk about it? You know, are you, it's your home where you're having that conversation with your therapist or your psychiatrist about how you're feeling with the whole fact that the world is going to hell in handbasket. Is there a safe space to talk about it? Which also goes down into the topic of gun violence, like what is what effect does this have on the rate of suicide? What effect does that have when it comes to financial distress that leads to suicidality, even even without prior mental health conditions? Like if you're suddenly wondering, how am I going to pay the rent next month? And we can also go into, even if we avoid the topic of suicide, which is kind of touchy, since it's really hard the, the movement has had a hard time touching it within the gun violence prevention space without stigmatizing mental health. We have to go into the fact that a lot of people are right now trapped in the shelter in place with their abusive partners. And I'm thinking when it comes to policy things like the boyfriend loophole and so on. So that is also another thing. And we can easily expect a rise in, in deaths around domestic violence deaths in phone calls to police around that and so on so yeah and and sort of on that note I think that and we've talked about this on the podcast you before which you did beautifully on there's this misconception that when individuals have been injured by a firearm if they live they're magically okay right you you get sent home from the hospital you're perfectly fine everything's great after and we pay a lot of attention, understandably, to the individuals, the hundred a day that we lose to gun violence, but we don't pay as much attention to the 200 a day that we know are shot and survive. And so what's happening to those 200 a day, possibly more, who are being injured but not passing away during this time of COVID when the hospital is quite possibly a dangerous place to be? Well, to begin with, even in normal times, Given the fact that firearms have gotten more and more lethal over time and harmful to those who survive in terms of uh, lost body parts, lost organs, will you ever, will you might be permanently disabled physically speaking? And we have, and that's without even going into the trauma, emotional trauma of it. And while modern medicine can be nothing short of miraculous sometimes in terms of what uh how many people can survive because of it you know we are ignoring how many people end up spending months and months in a hospital because of it how many people lose entire spleens and intestines and i can keep on getting really gross here and they all become part of the disability community in many ways you're pretty much automatically part of it because if even if you recover fully and have a perfect physical life, you'll still have the emotional trauma of, say, being in a mass shooting and hiding under the dead bodies and things like that that happen in Polk, for example. But at the same time, we often forget about that. We assume, you know, you're going to be fine because of the survivors. So we don't bring those folks out to the vigils to talk about it as much. And at the same time, there is the question of the disability community welcoming them. I know some activists like Rebecca Copley have made a point saying after shootings and so on, you know, you're part of it. We will be here when you're when you're ready for it. But it's okay to have those feelings of 
uh, negative feelings about it. But I also think how you said the hospitals are now even more dangerous. People die in hospitals all the time and now even more so than usual, much more so than usual. And there was this headline from the Baltimore mayor who said, people, please stop shooting at each other so we have the spare beds for COVID patients. And a lot of people are sharing that in a ha-ha, look at how, look at that sarcasm. And yes, it is an interesting sarcasm, but it is true. A lot of people might suffer a lot because of lack of access, because hospitals are so swamped and shootings are not going to go down necessarily. Yes, people are going to be less out, but we're still going to have domestic violence at home, which is almost always. We need to remember that when somebody has a firearm, odds are that it's going to be used against a member of the household rather than against the proverbial stranger burglar that comes in to kill you uh, and the good guy with the gun uh, mythos. That's That's been one of, one of my side concerns too, is with so many people being out of work now, it's have people lost their health insurance? Have people lost an income? Because as an American who was for a time uninsured, I know how expensive just life maintenance, yeah. particularly if you've got therapy bills, if you've got, you know, an SSRI you have to take, those things add up quite quickly. And so to be a victim of gun violence and to then be presented with a bill in this time of economic mm-hmm. downturn, especially if you're already a member of a vulnerable community, has got to be terrifying. Like we discussed a lot in the prior uh, podcast, a lot of the people most vulnerable to gun violence are in the widely publicized mass shootings, but the everyday gun violence in many parts of the country that impacts primarily uh, marginalized communities, people of color, and so on. And also, that's more people who are most likely to not have health insurance, to not have that access. One of the big issues that intersects with everything is the topic of universal health care, Medicare for all being the current initiative, but we can give it any other name du jour that gets in the next Congress. And that is essential for victims of gun violence who, hey, you got shot, now you spent three months in a hospital and recovering, guess what, now you can't work and you lost your income and your health insurance. Several million people have applied to unemployment insurance a lot of those have just lost their access to health care, and a lot of those are going to get sick because of COVID. And if they're victims of gun violence, which many of them will be more vulnerable, be it out of suicide, be it out of uh, domestic violence, and I can keep on going, are, going, are not going to be able to afford that health care. So right now, I would potential topic for the progressive movement and the gun violence prevention world, considering the impact it has on those who survive, is the topic of universal health care, of not attaching it to employment. If you end up losing health care for when you get sick, so if you get sick or injured and, again, can't work because not everyone can work and their worth shouldn't be determined on them, they can lose that health care. On the contrary, they need it even more. So, and again, even delve too much into the entire emotional trauma bit and the mental health care and I can keep on going. I mean I would love for you to keep on going because this I mean that's that's directly it though right because (laughs) no because one of the questions I had for you is that you know 
trauma surgeons, we've seen such incredible advances and the way that we can treat people who have had a traumatic gun, gun injury. So we do see less death. We still yeah. see more shootings. We just see less death. And so that, I mean, that's great, but that leaves this huge population that we can't study very well because of limits on the CDC that previously existed prior to this year that have these huge long-lasting impacts on individuals, on their families, on people who have to now be caretakers, mm -hmm. on people who have lifelong conditions and comorbidities and, 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 and all of these things. And then COVID, I think, has just pointed and out. And it can happen to anyone. Exactly. Basically. It's not, uh, there's often the perception of it can't happen to me, but it's kind of in some ways gun violence in America is kind of like a car accident. You can be the best car, the best driver on earth and never break any traffic laws. And by the way, such a person does not exist uh, <laughs> and still get T-boned at 90 miles per hour by a drunk driver. You know, Yeah. That can happen to anyone. Yeah. And well, and we're seeing, I think, a little bit of this victim blaming happening too. Sometimes mm -hmm. with as we're seeing more and more healthcare uh, professionals getting infected, it's well, they chose to be healthcare professionals, they chose to put them on the line. We hear similar narratives about those who are injured in everyday gun violence. The reality is is that no one should be dying. No one should be getting shot. Yeah. And it's how do we provide equitable Hair. And that's not too far away from the whole, what were you wearing to the rape and sexual assault victim? And we can go from, again, the mass, the very celebrated and media mass shootings. So at this point, they happen so often that even the media doesn't cover them as much, uh, unless it's the onion with its usual only country where it happens story. And at the same time, we also see it in, it could happen to you as it could happen to the person uh, who gets robbed at the corner store. It could happen to literally anyone and more so people who live in marginalized communities where people are driven to uh, criminalized forms of making a living. And that also intersects with issues like drug decriminalization. There's, and that goes into things like sex work, like uh, drug like drug sales and so on, which are criminalized, criminalized, and thus people who are driven into that end up uh, more likely to be victims of violence and so on because precisely the state has pushed them to the margin. This will also rise a lot in terms of like a lot of gun deaths are often driven by addiction when we think about also around mental health and so on. And this will also be a time where many people will be relapsing because of stress, because of not having access to uh, the care they need or the support groups they need and so on. And addiction is a form of disability that we should accept. So yeah. Yeah, that's been the conversation too of the, you know, what about people who are actively in addiction treatment? You know, outpatient treatment is how are they going to continue to get access? Mm -hmm. And that's the same for everyone, I think. People who yeah. have dialysis, how are they going to continue to get access? People who need daily mental health check-ins, how are they going to keep getting access? Mm -hmm. How do we keep this system going when it was already pretty broken to begin yeah. with? And how do we keep services like, for example, domestic violence shelters, which are congregate settings that are precisely not made for social distancing and so on, open and running? How do we keep all those 
support groups uh, running for people who are at greater risk of gun violence and are constantly in the, you know, the person who I'm at the most risk for, I live with them and can't leave the home now with them. And the child is at home instead of being at school all day and I can keep on going. And now with COVID, that may be even more relevant as we see more people driven out of work. And there's also the inequality of who gets to be essential and essentially sacrificial at times versus who gets to be paid to be at home, by extension, who is going to be more likely to be a victim of violence. And again, and more people will be afraid of seeking care, of going out because of shelter-in-place orders, because they're trapped at home without a job that they just lost, and that was the only way to seek independence from the abusive partner who may or may not have a gun, which is how domestic violence is intrinsically tied to gun violence prevention, and also who may have lost their health care and are thus afraid of seeking any sort of mental health help. And it also goes a bit into similar things when we talk about mental health and suicide and gun violence into addiction, which we may see higher rates of that as we see fewer in-person resources, again, support groups being shuttered and so on. And at the same time, people losing employment and we can keep on going. So you cannot see, I realize I've been talking a lot about everything under the sun, but you cannot put gun violence outside of that. Basically. Yeah, I, I think that COVID has in many ways pointed out, well, two things. One, that we had huge structural inequalities in the United States that are just now being uh, exquisitely pointed out by how quickly some communities have run mm-hmm. out of access to things. But then the second thing being that we cannot put gun violence in a silo. It's connected to food access. It's connected to domestic violence. It's connected to schooling. It's, it's connected to all of these things that are really essential for, for day-to-day living. And mm-hmm. on sort of the essential end of things, I think we have to talk about, too, the fact that first-time gun ownership is rising. People are buying guns more. And I wondered, in particular, but what, what you thought about the NRA putting out the series of ads saying that if you are disabled in this time of COVID, the only way to protect yourself is to buy a firearm. I mean, I, I sometimes feel, even as someone who disagrees a lot with the idea that the Second Amendment is meant for everyone to have access to everything short of an ICBM, I wish that whatever, like, there is a sad story and that the NRA isn't so much for the Second Amendment as much as white conservatives being able to own guns. It's become a fundamentally right-wing organization beyond just the Second Amendment. And I think the best case, uh, the best example of, of that is how silent they were when Philando Castile was killed for possibly having a firearm despite having a uh, concealed carry light, uh, which probably puts him in the more irresponsible category of gun owners because they have to jump a bunch of hoops to actually have that rather than any Joe with a gun in their home thinking that they're somehow going to magically be safer because of that. I would say that is obviously the red, a red herring and the problem is part of the panic. And some states have gone in Pennsylvania, the state liquor stores are, are essential despite the effects that alcohol withdrawal can have on people and are not wanting all those people in hospitals right now. 
but gun, gun stores are essential and those get to stay open. Some, and many states are putting gun shops as essential businesses so they can stay open during shelter-in-place orders. And that increase in gun ownership and first-time gun ownership also goes to the increase in violence. Probably all the listeners to a show like this know that people who own a gun in the home, it's more likely to be used against themselves or in someone they, they know. Again, domestic violence, again, suicide, again, all the desperation that is happening across the country, ranging from, am I going to get sick and die, to... I just lost my health care. I just lost my livelihood. I don't know how I'm going to feed myself soon. And by the way, I make too much to uh, qualify for the $1,200. And so if you made too much last year, but now are making nothing, you're sort of out of luck, for example. And that will only expand gun violence. The more guns are on the streets, the more uh, gun violence happens. That's simply fact of life. And the more we treated as a privileged essential business like grocery stores and pharmacies, the more that is going to happen. I'm just wondering if you have any suggestions on how we, and again, we as America, because I have no power, but how we can provide like equitable services for gun violence survivors, for members of the disabled community, for vulnerable people, especially in this time. Is there a way to do that? I mean, it requires a fundamental reworking of what we see as the role of government in so terms of easy. care. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> no biggie. Just a no little pressure. revolution. Yeah. But I would say it requires a reworking of what is the government's role in terms of caring for its people, in terms of things like universal health care, so that everyone who's losing their job can still access health care in terms of who is the most vulnerable and affected, because right now all the CDC guidelines of shelter-in-place being designed for people who get to be paid by their work to stay home, and who is left behind. That is the fundamental question of every form of advocacy, who is in, in the table and who is being left behind. And in the case of gun violence, it means trying to work towards preventing the rise of gun violence and deaths and victims that we're going to see as a result of this in the form of trauma, in the form of domestic violence, in the form of more people being unemployed and being driven to criminalize forms for making a living, and so forth and so forth. And all of that is tied to things like universal health care, universal basic income, uh, as the late campaign of Andrew Yang at one point said, and now he must be feeling really vindicated that everyone is advocating for him. So it it needs a fundamental acceptance of the progressive agenda in many ways, which is all tied together. We can't see it. I've always said we can't see it as isolated from each other, but now we can afford to do so even less. Thank you again for hopping on, Victoria. Thank you. You too. Looking for more gun violence prevention content? Try Audible. Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 250,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products with free apps for every type of phone and device. So you can access your books anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone. Right now, I'm listening to Gunfight by Adam Winkler, so I can spend this time learning more about the District of Columbia v. Heller case. Brady listeners can get a special 30-day trial and free audiobook by going to www.audible.com slash Brady at home. That's slash Brady at home. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening. As always, Brady's life-saving work in Congress, the courts, and communities across the country is made possible thanks to you. For more information on Brady or how to get involved in the fight against gun violence, please like and subscribe to the podcast, get in touch with us at bradyunited.org, or on social at Brady Buzz. Be brave, and remember, take action, not sides. 